0: Good morning, for some of you looking at this title, you may be thinking if it's time to start your afternoon nap. (laughs) I hope not, but there's a possibility. Um, For those of you who like the study of Revelation, you may be saying, so who is the 144,000? I'm not sure what all thoughts you may be thinking, but I encourage you to hold on. This is the last section of the mini-series we've been looking at, dealing with the seals of God, and um, we can always hope that that way that voice is transferred to preaching. Yes. Uh, but for now, um, I, I pray that it's also molded. God bless, Mama. Amen. Amen. Those of you mothers who have children who make noise, I want to let you know you have my compassion. I totally, totally feel it. And uh, way back, in, you didn't ask for this, but way back in the day, uh, when Grace was first starting out, uh, she didn't have the privilege of having me standing up here. And so I was the one who took her out. And I remember we went out every Sabbath for about four months in a row and somehow got cured. But it was, uh, it was not a quick process. And so, All right. This morning as uh, we get started, this has been a high Sabbath. Um, In just so many ways, I always enjoy seeing dedications. Um, Outer case, thank you. Um, I always enjoy having ministers of experience that I can uh, watch and spend time with. I appreciate the song. I want to serve him longer. and Gerard, just thank you. I saw the bees. And uh, Emily, thank you for sharing with us. Ms. Florine, I believe that when a person comes and prays in a public way, and you may not realize this, but I believe that they're interceding for the congregation. That's the biblical principle. And um, I praise God that we have had an intercessor for us today. As we look at this next section, the final piece that we'll be looking at in our study of the six seals, seven seals, um, I just ask if you would just bow your heads with me real quick. Father, I'm acknowledging it is your spirit we need. We pray that you will speak to us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. When I first started teaching High school history, there was this love I sensed in my students, specifically my male students, for war. And I, ha- I have to admit, their teacher had a little bit of that same focus. Um, whereas if you were being taught by my wife history, you might focus on inventions and new things that were being developed. With me, it would be the Civil War, Spanish American War, World War I. Because I always, I, I always got um, excited by tales of bravery. You know, um, and this is a picture from World War I. Uh, you recognize the gas mask and some of the things that we're dealing with in the trench warfare at that time. The battlefield and the horrors of that place always preceded a ticker tape parade. What I'm trying to say is, the fight on the battlefield has to precede the hero's welcome. What does that mean? In our study, we've been looking at the seven seals we looked at first the vision of Christ in heaven. We saw, we saw God the Father on His throne in the throne room scene in Revelation 4. Then we saw the introduction of the slain lamb in Revelation chapter 5 who had the seal, was sealed with seven seals. Then in Revelation 6, we watched the, the scenes of history come from the Christian church as those seals were peeled back. We saw the horses come out and we realized that horses in, in, in the Bible are almost always used in connection with warfare and we saw the warfare of the Christian church. We heard the cry in Revelation chapter 5, excuse me, Revelation 6, the fifth seal, the souls under the altar. What was their cry? How long, O Lord? And then we saw that picture in the sixth seal where the the sky is rolled together like a scroll And, and all these people who Did not know the Lamb, crying out to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the wrath of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And then we heard that haunting question Who shall be able to stand? And then we looked at the seventh seal. In the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven. And we're going to delve into that a little bit later in our study of Revelation, some mini series sometime in the future. But that question, Who shall be able to stand? is answered in chapter 7. So that's our study for today, Revelation chapter 7. Who shall be able to stand? It will be answered here by God's grace from his word. So if you have your Bibles, you would like to open up to Revelation chapter 7. That is where we're going to be spending some of our time. You know that I like to delve in other places. I looked at the notes today, as I've done every Sabbath morning recently, and said, who do I think I am to try to accomplish this? So what I'm hoping to do is, um, if any of you are interested, feel free to ask me for notes. I have copious notes with all my, my references. Otherwise, uh, you will hear some summaries this morning so we have a flow of thought. Uh, I think that is a key. All right. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 1. After these things. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to, what's that word? Harm the earth and the sea. Earth and sea, they're giving the totality of, the, of, of, of our planet. Saying... Let me just make sure. Is this this might be me? I'm trying. To, it's not. Okay. Saying, "Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads." Please notice here there is an issue of harm that's here, coming destruction, and that coming destruction is being symbolized by four winds being held back by four angels. It says here. They were standing at the four corners of the earth. Now, there's some interesting, uh, interesting enough. There are some people who use this passage and say that the earth is flat and it is not round. I'll just tell you ahead of time, I'm not going there. I know you knew that ahead of time, but I thought I'd tell you. Uh, four corners of the earth. Throughout the Bible, we see it in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 12, Ezekiel 7:2, some other places. Four corners of the earth is kind of like you and I saying the four points of the compass. This is from the entire direction. Every single direction you're seeing these winds would be coming. Um, in fact, the winds are in connection with the four corners. If you look with me to Jeremiah chapter 49. Jeremiah 49. You say we haven't read much of Revelation yet. We'll come back. Revelation. Jeremiah chapter 49. And there is an interesting passage here. And as you're turning to Jeremiah 49, as I'm turning there, just a quick reminder, in the book of Revelation, Revelation is written in symbolic language, and those symbolic languages comes predominantly from the Old Testament. In fact, more than two-thirds of the book of Revelation is taken in whole or part from the Old Testament. John is writing to people who know the Old Testament inside and out. So he signified it. He told them, writing this in symbols. But then he is using symbols they're familiar with. And we're going to see that as we go through. We've seen that so far. Jeremiah chapter 49. Did I mention what verse? Verse 36. Jeremiah 49, verse 36. Against Elam, I will bring the four winds. From the four quarters of the earth heaven and scatter them towards all those winds. Then it says this, there shall be no nations where the outcast of Elam will not go. So here you have the winds, the four quarters of the earth. He goes, I'm going to take them and scatter them back out towards those four winds. And then he gives this clarifying statement. There'll be no nation where they don't go. Four quarters of the earth is everywhere. No nation where they will not be. In other words, they will be everywhere. That's the picture that's being given here. Uh, We also get that when Jesus comes back in the second coming, Matthew chapter 24, says he's going to gather his people from the four winds. That doesn't mean he's going to choose four locations on earth and get people from there and leave everyone else. What is he saying? I'm getting people from all the entire earth and bringing them together. So that's the uh, picture that we have there. We have a wind that is harmful. Throughout the Bible, winds is connected with destruction. Um, In fact, you're in Jeremiah. Let's just look at verse 32. Just go back a few verses here. Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 32. It says, Their camels shall be for booty, and the multitude of their cattle for plunder. I will scatter to all winds those in the furthest corners, and I will bring their calamity from all sides, says the Lord. There is a connection with winds and destruction throughout. So, Four angels holding back four winds. These are winds of destruction from the four corners. That means there's destruction that's going to come on an entire planet. With that being said, let's look at this phrase that's here in verse 2. There's an angel having the seal of the living God. And verse 3 says, we will not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees. We'll not let this worldwide destruction come until we have sealed the servants of God. Where? In In their foreheads. So that is the, the picture sealed in their foreheads. Now, the, uh, some of you may have a Bible that says on the forehead. Uh, some translations say in the forehead. You will understand the picture here is not... <laughs> it's not like the picture on the screen, okay? The idea of a seal was actually to be in the forehead. Uh, but we, this is the, to be very pictorial here. What is the seal... Of a living God um, great book here have you ever read this history of the Christian Church by William Jones no this is not one of the ones I'm reading right now but I had this in my library and the reason I chose this one is because if you open it up it has a seal on the inside you can't see it from where you're at but there's a seal right here so you closer might be able to and it says this from the library of Jason Slager on loan from God. So, you probably realize this book is not mine. This seal, if you will, says who it belongs to. You remember when you were in elementary school, the beginning of the school year, uh, you would have all your textbooks delivered out to everyone. You've done this many times, have you not, Mr. and Mrs. Wall? And you deliver out those books, and then people take their pencil and inscribe their name onto that book so that they know that that name that book belongs to who them so if you took twenty sixth grade math books lay them right here and mix them all up you could find which one was yours how by looking for your seal looking for your name am i right that's saying that this one belongs to me that's important for us to get you see in ancient times a seal, part of the reason for a seal was to show ownership. Part of the reason for a seal was to show ownership. Yes, it would also to protect contents. We understand that. We see that in other ways. But it was to show ownership. In Ezekiel chapter 9, if you don't mind turning there with me, there is. I believe this is the imagery we see being used in the seal and revelation. Ezekiel chapter 9, and we will be looking at verse 3. Ezekiel chapter 9, Ezekiel is a big prophetic book, second part of the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 9 verse 3 says, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, where it had been, to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen, who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. Now note, this is where the, the seal comes in in verse 4. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem and put a mark where? <laughs> On the foreheads of the men who do one. That's right. They sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. So if they're sighing and crying over the abominations that are done within it, are these people pro-God or against God? I'm sorry, just using kind of more modern terms. They're for God. They see the terrible things that are happening in Jerusalem. They're crying and sighing for the things that are taking place. And he said, put a seal on them before you do anything else. Then destruction takes place. Seal on the foreheads of God's servants, then destruction. Same exact thing that we see about to play out in Revelation chapter 7. So there is a picture here. That mark on the forehead of the servants of God in Ezekiel chapter 9 said this. These are mine. They belong to me. Now, we remember seeing something that was a sign By the way, seal and sign are sometimes used synonymously in the Bible. It was a sign during the Egyptian exodus, right before the exodus. What was that main event that took place? Passover. And when Passover, how would you know who belonged to God and who didn't? There was a blood on the doorpost, right? There was a sign, if you will, that who's in here belongs to me. The mark on the forehead, the seal, is a sign that God's people belong to him. Where is the seal? In the forehead. Do you mind turning with me to the same book, Revelation? Uh, Let's go back to Revelation. Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation Revelation 14 both have descriptions of the 144,000. We're going to look at the description in Revelation 14, and it may open up our eyes a little bit towards the seal we're talking about. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1. Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000. So here we have a lamb, with him 144,000. Now notice verse 2. It says, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of a loud thunder. Oh no, I, I, I stopped. Let me finish the last part of verse 1. I have a 2 in my Bible which says I'm supposed to look at the center column of reference, and I thought that was my verse number. I'm sorry. Having his father's name, what? Written in their foreheads. So here's 144,000. What is in their foreheads? Father's name. In Revelation chapter 7, what is in their foreheads? Seal. Sign, seal, right? Revelation 14, what's in their foreheads? The father's name. Do you see that? Both are the 144,000 but you're looking at something here that is synonymous. A seal and the name of God written in their foreheads. Revelation 22. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 4. Speaking of the servants of God, those who are in heaven, it says in Revelation 22 verse 4, they shall see his face and his name shall be where on their forehead. So we, we're kind of getting this picture that those who are saved, the 144,000 are of that group, have what in the forehead? The name of God. Now, how does God do this? Gets an inkhorn, and all of a sudden, in Hebrew, you start seeing God spelled out in your forehead. Maybe in Greek, maybe in Aramaic. No. What does it mean to have the name of God in your forehead? What does it mean to have the name of God? What is the name of God? I am that I am. That is one of them. Prince of Peace, that is one of them. What's being meant by this? I won't take too much time, but I think we need to look at a passage in Exodus. Do you mind turning with me to Exodus chapter 34? Exodus chapter 34, uh, there's a beautiful picture here. Uh, Moses is, is in this deep relationship with God. He is speaking to God and he says, God, I want to see your glory. And God said, I, can't, <laughs> I, I really can't show you all my glory, but I can put you in a, in a rock. I'm going to pass by, I'm going to cover that rock, and you can see my backside. It's kind of an interesting story. Uh, Moses wants to see who God is. Verse 5 of Exodus 34. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. I love this. Moses is on the mountain. It says, God descended in a cloud and stood with him there. The intimate connection we see between Moses and God here is so beautiful. It continues on and says, And proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him. So the name of the Lord is being proclaimed. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Here it is. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands. It continues on. This is part of God's name. And you and I would describe it as his character. We would describe it as his character. Um, it is part of his name. Now, by the way, this idea of a name being connected with character, we see throughout many cultures in our world. You name a person based on who they are. My wife and I have been, (laughs) those of you who know a little bit about us naming our children, It's, it's kind of interesting. Okay, but naming children, we wish that we could go back to the Native American way of doing it. You get a name for your child after a couple weeks, and you give your name that child. Some of you may be familiar with Native American history. There's a famous Sioux chieftain named Sitting Bull. That was not his first name. His first name was Slow. Some people said, that should be my first name. Slow was his first name. But after several years, got older, maybe a young adult, maybe a junior age, He had a special event take place in his experience, and he was renamed Sitting Bull. And it was to show something about who he was. I like that idea because in the Bible, when you had a person named, their name told you something about them and their relationship with God. What does Elijah's name mean? Elijah, what does his name mean? My God is Jehovah. What does Daniel's name mean? God is my judge. You have all kinds of interesting names in the Bible, and there's a meaning to them. So, here, there's a name, the character, if you will, of God is placed where on the 144,000? In their foreheads. And it is a sign that sets them apart. Okay. How do you and I get sealed? God, please send down the writer with the ink horn so he can put a seal on my head. Is that how we do it? No. How are you and I sealed then? Ephesians chapter 4. Do you mind turning with me to Ephesians chapter 4? It's a good question. How are we sealed? And some of you who are listening are saying, okay, Chuck, there's more than one aspect to the seal. You're right. And we're going to be looking at other aspects of the seal when we get a little bit further in the book of Revelation. But this is the basic big picture of seal. We, we cannot miss this. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm turning very slowly today. Ephesians chapter 4. And I'd like to look at verse 1. And verse, uh, no, chapter, excuse me, chapter 1. Let's go back a few pages. Chapter 1 and starting with verse 13. Ephesians chapter 4, excuse me, Ephesians 1, verse 13. Our next verse is Ephesians 4, but I don't want to go there yet. Ephesians 1, verse 13. It says, In him, speaking of Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, whom also having believed, you were sealed with who? The Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. We are sealed with whom? The Holy Spirit. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. I've been trying to get there the whole time. Let's go there now. Ephesians 4 and verse 30. Ephesians 4 verse 30. It says, And do not grieve who? The Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were what? Sealed for the day of what? Redemption. Redemption sealed for the day of redemption so the holy spirit is the one who seals us for redemption you see that in both sections here who seals us holy spirit what did we say was going to be in the forehead his name which is also another way of saying his character so the holy spirit is the one who puts the name or the character in the forehead of god's people that's good news I can tell you what. If it was up to Chuck Holtree to put God's character in my forehead, there'd be no hope. There wouldn't be. And if it was up to you. Don't take it personally. But there'd be no hope. It's the Holy Spirit that seals the name of God, a character, into our foreheads. Beautiful picture here. Um, by the way, in Second Corinthians chapter one. I'm looking at our time so i'm going to just tell you the, the the reference second corinthians chapter 1 verse 21 and 22 in the early church the presence of the holy spirit in a person's life was a sign or seal that they were part of god's church the presence of the holy spirit in a person's life was a sign or a seal that they were part of god's church um so the sealing is not just the end time thing is there a special sealing at the end of time yes without a question and we are going to be looking at it as we go in our study of revelation But sealing also was something that was taking place in Paul's day. And it was done by whom? Holy Spirit. So that's an important key that we're looking at here. All right. Revelation chapter 7. Verse 4. And I heard the number of those that were sealed, or who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of Israel were sealed. How many people were sealed? 144,000. We're going to be looking at the children of Israel briefly, but before I do that, why the number 144,000? Well, you have a number 12, right? As soon as we see 144,000, we realize that that's 12 squared, right? Um, 12 apostles. 12 disciples and then the 12 tribes and just to give you another picture of that that's revelation chapter 21 okay i'm getting into this okay revelation chapter 21 go ahead and look at the verses uh 12 21 verse 12 and verse 14 and in it we see a picture of the 12 gates with the 12 tribes written on them and we have the 12 foundations with the names of the 12 apostles So we see all that connected, by the way, 12 times 12, of course, 144. Why a thousand? Throughout the Old Testament, the thousands of Israel was in reference to the military of Israel. Almost always, not always, almost always, you see thousands of Israel in a military terminology. And they went out by their thousands, they were going out for warfare. Um, they went out to fight the Midianites. This is Numbers chapter 31, verses 4 through 6. They put a 1,000 from each tribe. 12,000 to go out and fight the Midianites. Um, David, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 13, was a captain over 1,000. A military unit in the Old Testament in Hebrew society was 1,000. You and I might today say a battalion. These are battalions being set out. David's battalion would be David's thousand. And that would be how it would be spelled out. All right, 12 times 12 times 1,000 gives us a connotation of military. Going out for warfare, if you will, the church militant, for those of you who like theological terms. Okay, so we have the 144,000, if you will, by rank and file, 12,000 from each tribe, Going out for warfare, if you will, the church militant. And you could say, well, Chuck, it, it takes some effort in Revelation 7 to go through each tribe. What about that? Now, if you go through and look at the uh, battle lineups in the Old Testament, it's how they do it. And from the tribe of Judah came 22,000, and from the tribe of Ephraim came 35,000. I just made those numbers up. Please do not hold me to them. But that's the concept. And they would go by each tribe. This many came out from each tribe. In fact, the one group that did not send thousands wasn't sending military. They were sending wise men. Interesting, but we uh, digress. Let's go back to this. Children of Israel, 12 tribes. Did you realize that 10 of those tribes did not exist at the time John wrote the book? Do you realize that? 700 over 700 years earlier they had been dispersed throughout the syrian empire and through intermarriage and other things they were not there now there were two judah and benjamin they were the southern tribe benjamin was part of Judah, so we call it the southern tribe of judah but benjamin was part of it so you had judah and benjamin they were there in fact that's where we get the word jew well the jews of the new testament were from what tribes judah and benjamin you weren't having Jews that necessarily were from Issachar or Naphtali or, or something like that. So when you're looking at this, uh, this is speaking of who then, if those tribes don't exist. In the New Testament, Israel is actually describing God's people. Jew or Gentile, Israel's describing God's people. You can see it throughout the book of Romans. If you don't mind turning with me to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. We see it in Romans, we see it in Galatians. If any of you are interested, I I have struggled and wrestled with this, and I am probably guessing I'm not alone. Um, I'd like to share with you some research on who is Israel of the New Testament, and more specifically, the Israel of Romans. Um, If any of you are interested in that, uh, Galatians chapter 3. We will speak more about this actually next week, but that's not going to be our main focus. But Galatians 3, verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. Speaking of, let's start with verse 26. For ye are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as ye were baptized into Christ have put on Christ there is neither jew nor greek there is neither slave nor free there is neither male nor female you are all one in christ jesus and then this telling statement if you are christ then you are adam's seed what what was it abraham's seed why abraham because abraham was the father of the children of israel yes jacob was but abraham is the descendant that's what they look at father abraham He says, if you are Christ, you're now a child of Abraham, which means you're now a spiritual Jew. Biblically speaking, we are spiritual Jews, those who believe in Jesus Christ. And heirs according to the promise. There's a beautiful, beautiful picture with that. So here it is. Back to Revelation chapter 7. I've answered some questions that you may not have had, (laughs) but we have some other ones coming up. We have looked at the seal, God's name. His character. It's placed in the forehead by means of whom? The Holy Spirit. Then we realize there's 144,000. As soon as we see things in thousands, we recognize in the Old Testament Hebrew language, that's military language. So this is, if you will, the church militant. And it's not just Israel. It's spiritual Israel that we see being described here. But this next part, I hope you don't miss what did he say in verse 4 and i heard the number now look in verse 9 after these things i what's, what's the word looked i heard and then i looked we see this pattern over and over in the book of revelation revelation chapter one i heard a voice behind me like a trumpet i turned around and i saw Jesus, walking as Son of Man, walking among the candlesticks. What he heard was a trumpet. What he saw was Jesus in the candlesticks. Revelation chapter 5. And I heard, saying, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And I turned and I saw a lamb. The voice of the trumpet and the one walking among the candlesticks was the same. The Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb were also the same. You look at this in Revelation chapter 17 too. He hears about a woman sitting on many waters. He turns around and sees a woman sitting on a beast. Same thing. Why am I saying it? Please, let's not miss this part. Yeah, some of you are going to challenge and say, Chuck, this is, I've never heard this before. Have mercy. Please look at it and study it. He hears 144,000, a militant group of God's people, He turns and sees a great multitude. You know what I'm about to say. Based upon the pattern we see in Revelation, it seems safe to conclude that the 144,000 and the great multitude are the same group of people. It's a pattern that is used throughout the book of Revelation. You say, whoa, wait a minute, they're different. 144,000 is not great multitude. You're right. And so a lion is not a lamb. A lion is not a lamb. What it did is give a different description of the same being. And this, the 144,000 the great multitude, are given a different description of the same group of God's people. Different description. Let's look at that description as we play with it here. Uh, verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands. One thing that is a little bit different, instead of having an exact number, now what do we have? A multitude that can't be numbered, and it's from every single nation. It's the entire planet, if you will. Then we see something else that's a little different. What are they wearing? You don't. You aren't told what they're wearing, the 144,000. What's the great multitude wearing? White robes. Why white robes? Uh, yes, righteousness, purity, that's great. But there's something that's come up several times in our study of Revelation. Victory. To those who overcome, Church of Sardis, Church of Laodicea, you will be dressed in white. Those who are souls under the altar crying in the Fifth seal, rest now. I'll give you your white garment. Just rest. It's almost like those who overcome receive the white. By the way, the victorious armies that come down from heaven in Revelation chapter 19, they are clothed in white. White is a symbol of victory. When it comes, excuse me, let me rephrase that. A white garment is a symbol of victory. Um, Very important. By the way, in Revelation 19, Jesus isn't wearing a white garment. We'll get there when we come to that. All right. And what else is in their hands? What do they hold in their hands? Palm branches. If you look in John chapter 12, verse 13, Jesus is in his triumphal entry. And what do they have in their hands? They took branches from the palm trees and they waved them because their king was coming in. It was a sign of victory. And you'll see this throughout Roman history, actually. This is not more Hebrew history. This is more of a Roman thing. Palm branches being raised. Actually, it is Hebrew as well. Okay, verse 14, something else about this group of people. Uh, Verse 13, we'll start, we'll lead into it. It says, in verse 13, one of the elders answered, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, verse 14, sir, you know, John is a smart man. Don't try to answer the question. If the person who knows who's asking it knows the answer. So he said to me, these are the ones who have come out of the what? Great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Fascinating. The great multitude are those who have come out of the great tribulation victorious. The 144,000, the church militant, there wasn't tribulation yet. The angels were holding back the four winds of strife until they were sealed. Now... The tribulation's over. And these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. Fascinating. And lest we be confused. Um, there we go. So much for being uh, on par with our notes. Lest we can be confused. There's something else I like in verse 14. How were their robes white? They are washed in the blood of the Lamb. White robes don't come from personal purchase. You don't go out to Walmart or Kmart or the mall and buy a white robe. Because you can't afford one. Not this kind. This kind of white robe is not something that you can make on your own loom. This is not something you can put together and sew in the back room of your house. This white garment is only white because of the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, the white robe of victory only takes place through the blood of Jesus. Victory in Jesus. Amen? And that's the picture that's being described here. We have this group going in militant. And then we have them coming out in white robes. And it says, well, let's just clarify. The white robes weren't because they're good fighting. The white robes came because they were washed in the blood of the Lamb. What a beautiful picture you and I can see of this end time. Because quite frankly, as I looked at the warfare of the Christian church through ages, it's it's kind of scary. The question, how long, O Lord? And who shall be able to stand are the real questions we face today. But here is, I believe, an answer to the cry of those under the fifth seal. How long, O Lord? It's going to happen. I'm going to bring true vindication. Just wait for me. How long? Who shall be able to stand? Those who are clothed in white that's washed by my blood. You see this picture? So much is being answered in this chapter. That's why inspiration had to put it in there so we would see it. I like to uh, note their song in verse 10. I like to note their song in verse 10. Crying with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The salvation that we have, now we typically think of salvation in spiritual terms, and so it is. But salvation means being saved from something. We were saved through the great tribulation because of the Lamb, not because of us. Salvation belongs to the the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a beautiful picture, again, is laid out. If if you're not seeing it, I'm hoping, I will just say it clearly, Jesus is the center of this passage. Again, we see him being the central figure here. Um, in a book that I've been studying called Revelation of Jesus Christ by Ronko Stefanovich, he quotes a guy named William Barclay. Some of you may be familiar with William Barclay. He's a commentator. And here is what William Barclay says. The shout of the triumphant faithful ascribe salvation to God. It is God who has brought them through their trials and tribulations and distresses. And it is his glory which now they share. God is the great savior, the great deliverer of his people. And the deliverance which he gives is not the deliverance of escape, but the deliverance of conquest. I like that because here we have the 144,000 militant and they have conquested. They have gone through this terrible time and now they are triumphant in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not a deliverance which saves a man from trouble, but one which brings him triumphantly through trouble. We may not like that line, but you know battles are not won by running the opposite direction. Battles are won by fighting them. You can't win a battle you don't fight. and it comes with pain oftentimes. But God brings us through because He brings His church militant through. It does not make life easy, but it makes it great. (laughs) It's not part of the Christian hope to look for a life in which a man is saved from all trouble and distress. The Christian hope is that A man in Christ can endure any kind of trouble and distress and remain erect all through them and come out to glory on the other side. You know, you're going to notice this is going to keep coming up because we're living in interesting times right now. I'm staring at a, a lot of you sitting here with masks on your face. Life's not easy right now. Life's different right now. The leap that we have taken in our culture has been decades within a few months. Something has changed. But I want to encourage you in Christ, you can endure any kind of trouble and distress. In Christ, you can. Not by yourself. I know despair when I'm apart from God, but I also know hope and peace. When he has stayed my life. It is good news. What is the connection that this group has with the Lamb? Note it says in the end of our chapter here Revelation chapter 7 and verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. Where do they serve him? Day and night in his temple, that's right. And he who sits on the throne will do what? Dwell among them. This is what God has been longing for from the very beginning. I want them back with me. And here, the 144,000, the great multitude, are now being dwelled with by God himself. The lamb is dwelling with them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them in living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He will do it. The explanation for wiping tears from the eyes, it's, it's just giving you to tantalize you here that the great things are coming, but it's expelled out when we get to Revelation 21. All right. I'd like to close with a, a vision that a young lady had at a prayer meeting about 175 years ago. She was in prayer meeting and she had this vision of heaven. And I think it kind of gives us a, a visual of what we've been looking at. The wonderful things I saw there I cannot describe. Oh, that I could talk in the language of Canaan then I could tell a little of the glory of the better world. I saw their tables of stone in which the names of the 144,000 were graved in letters of gold. After we beheld the glory of the temple, we went out and Jesus left us and went to the city. Soon after, we heard his lovely voice again saying, Come, my people. You have come out of the great tribulation and done my will. Suffered for me. Come in to supper, for I will gird myself and serve you. This, by the way, is one of the statements of Jesus in the book of Luke that just mind blowing to me. When we get to heaven, you and I are not the waiters. God is. God is going to serve you and me. I want to be the servant in heaven. He said, No, no, Chuck, you sit down. I want to serve you. I don't deserve that. But it's the heart of God. I saw a table of pure silver. It was many miles in length, yet our eyes could extend over it. I saw the fruit of the tree of life, the manna, the almonds, figs, pomegranates, grapes, and many other kinds of fruit. I asked Jesus to let me eat of the fruit, and he said, not now. Those who eat of this fruit of this land go back to earth no more. But in a little while, if faithful, you shall both eat of the fruit of the tree of this life and drink of the water of the fountain. And then he said, you must go back to the earth again and relate to others what I have revealed to you. Then an the angel bore me down gently to this dark world. Sometimes I think I can stay here no longer. All things of earth look so dreary. I feel very lonely here, for I have seen a better land. Oh, that I had the wings like a dove. Then I would fly away and be at rest. Heaven is real our Savior, has His hand over us. We may be fighting through difficulties now, and I can tell you that it's not going to get easier in the days ahead. But I will say that His people come out of the tribulation. They don't get buried under. They come out. And the reason they come out is because their robes are made white in His blood. That's how they come out. And then forever, ever, they get to be with him. What a beautiful picture we see here in Revelation chapter 7. Things don't get better in our study of Revelation. This is like this little reminder, (laughs) heavens for real, reminder, things will get better. Trust me, everything is going to be okay. This is that picture that we get in the middle of Revelation. Then we're going to go into Revelation 8 and 9 sometime in the next couple months. But for now, let's leave with this beautiful picture, shall we? I want to encourage you. Revelation chapter 14, verse 4, says that those that were the 144,000 follow the Lamb whithersoever He goes. I want to encourage you to follow Jesus Christ. Find out where He's at and say, I want to be where He's at. And by the way, He knows where you're at and He wants to be where you're at. We have an awesome Savior. How many of you want to say, I want to follow the Lamb? I want to be with Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have looked at this picture of Your church, militant and triumphant. We've seen the hope of a better land. Our hearts are crying out for it now and You're telling us to stay faithful. We want to be with You, Father. You see our hands. We want to follow you. We want to be with the Lamb. Please draw close to us this day and also as we continue through this next week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.